All right, well, let's get started. Thank you for joining us. We're in Luke chapter 17. If you'd like to get out your Bibles and follow along with me. Last time we were together, we were talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And I told you that I was pretty confident that the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus was that. It was a story, not a parable. The difference being a parable is something made up to illustrate a truth, whereas a story is a retelling of, an, of a factual event. I believe that the rich man and Lazarus story is a retelling of a factual event. That's in Luke chapter 16. The reason I gave you, the main reason I gave you, was because of the name given to us in this story. Lazarus is given a name, whereas all the parables, it is the father, the son, the king, the servant, the shepherd, the sheep, the house owner. Uh, no parable ever gives a name. Now, that could just be a fluke, and Christ may be trying to make it a little more personal. Maybe it is still a parable. Either way, the lesson and the truth of it is profound, and I believe we need to take it to heart as I discussed last time we were together. Now, let's look, look at Luke 17 and verse 1. Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little things, little ones. I have been working with children, teenagers and adults now for, for 20 years. I've been working with children more than I've worked with adults. And to this day, it breaks my heart to see how people treat children. They treat children like they're adults, the conversations that they have with them. They treat children like the adults, the decisions they let them make. They treat children like they're adults in the way that they even discipline them. The discipline given to a child, a young child, five, six, or seven, their bodies, their minds, emotionally, physically, cannot and should not be made to handle the level of discipline, the verbal and emotional and physical that a lot of adults give. I'm not stating that an adult shouldn't uh, have discipline in the life of a child. I'm just saying uh, you got to remember who you're talking to. You're talking to a 4-year-old, a 5-year-old, an 8-year-old, an 11-year-old even. They're just not adults, and we need to stop pretending that they are. But that's not really what Christ is saying here. He's not talking about parents who are a little overzealous in their discipline. Uh, he's talking about those who are actually seeking to abuse, outrightly abuse children. And he says little ones. We know he's talking about children, not young adults, not teenagers. So Christ is referring to child abusers. That is this passage. I think that most people you speak to would be on the same page when it comes to child abusers. I'm not talking purely sexual abuse. We could be talking about physical abuse, even emotional abuse, those who would abuse a child. Knowingly, purposefully, without remorse, continually abusing a child. I think most people would be on the same page. That needs to be dealt with in a severe manner. Now, some might say life imprisonment is severe enough. Others might say the death penalty. We, you know, what your definition of severe might change. The point is, I think we mostly, those online, those in this room, most people you're going to know and talk to are going to say, yeah, severe dealing with child abusers. That's whether you're saved or unsaved, church or don't go to church. I think the human nature, the human condition uh, recognizes the need for innocent children to be protected and recognizes that it is the responsibility of us to protect children from child abusers. Now, what does Christ have to say about child abusers? Before we get to that, what about the question that comes into 
the heads of many, and that is, what kind of God would even allow child abusers to exist in the first place? That's a great question. And it's been asked of me many times. Why do you claim your God is so loving when he lets children, when he allows children to be abused, not just here, but everywhere, not just now, but at all times? Throughout the history of mankind, children have been abused. Throughout the cultures of the world, children have been, are, and will be abused. And so in anger, in bitterness, in skepticism, they want to attack the God we serve and say, you're telling me that your God can do anything. He has the power to do anything, and yet in his power, he allows children to be abused? What kind of God is that, and why do you think I'd want to serve that kind of God? Now, that question, when only stated in that way, without looking at everything in context, when I say everything, I mean truth in the Bible, truth out of the Bible, without looking at the big picture, that is a very difficult statement to answer. You know, that is interesting. We serve a God that can stop child abuse, but doesn't stop child abuse. you got to be honest. It is an interesting question, and you can't just ignore it. It needs to be answered. But you can't answer the question purely in the single statement that is offered. You have to look at everything around it. So let's do that tonight. First, I want to state, in no way does God condone or approve of child abuse. This verse, I think, clearly gives the heart of God. All right? So let's look at it again. If there's any doubt on where God stands with child abuse, let's see it again. It is better for him, him whom? Those who offend little ones, that would be abusing little ones, that a millstone were hanged about his neck. Isn't it interesting how when talking about child abusers, God is choosing to use the male gender? Are men the only ones that abuse children? Of course not. Absolutely not. But I think... Uh, statistically, men are more likely to abuse children. So, better that this guy would hang a millstone around his neck and be cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So, that's God's heart towards child abusers. God is in no way condoning, encouraging, enabling, or, um, or, or winking at, you might say, child abusers. In the Old Testament, those who harmed or abused women and children, uh, in some cases were even put to death, killed. Definitely was addressed, Old Testament law, God did not ignore it. But let's go back to the original statement, how could you serve a God that can stop child abuse and does not stop child abuse? Okay, the question is bigger than the statement just offered. The question is actually, why doesn't God stop all sin? I mean, why stop at child abuse, right? So is child abuse such a horrible thing that God must stop it, but rape of a woman of any age is okay? But no, no, rape too. Okay, fair enough. Then let's make sure that we're including that in the statement. A God that can stop rape, but doesn't stop rape. Why doesn't God do that? Okay, I agree. Let's put them together. Okay, but I mean, is it just rape and child abuse that are horrendous sins? What about murder, right? I mean, murder of the innocent, whether they're young or old, isn't that a pretty big deal? Oh, that's a big deal too. Okay, so let's include that in the statement then. Why, if God can stop murder, why doesn't God stop murder? Murder. What about addictions? Addictions that take the soul of the person. Before they're even dead, they're dead. <laughs> dead inside. Dead in their eyes, dead in their heart, dead in their life. And they're killing people with them as they go. 
the people they drag down with them in their addictions, the harm that they do to themselves and others, isn't that a really big deal? Well, not as big as child abuse. Maybe you say that because you're not related to someone who's suffering deep addiction. Because if you were, or if you were one, you would say that's a big deal. Let's throw that in there. What about lying? Oh, come on, Russ. Come on. There's no way that lying and deception can be placed on the same level as child abuse, murder, and extreme addictions that steal the soul of the person, right? No way. Oh, really? Just read recently about a young, another young lady who committed suicide. This is on national news, not necessarily here in Connecticut, but another young lady who committed suicide because of the attacks of her classmates, the things that were being said about her and to her, lies. Other young girls lying to her, about her, to their friends. This is a common thing. Students and teachers spreading gossip and lies about each other. And there are people who will kill themselves and do kill themselves, commit suicide, because of the lies said about them. Lies cut deep. In fact, the book of Proverbs defines gossip or someone who is stating untruths about you to others as like a knife being stuck in your gut. I mean, it isn't a physical pain, but it might as well be because it hurts so much. I understand that not all lies impact all people equally, but there are lies that have cost people their lives. There are lies that have sent people to an early grave. There are lies that have caused people to take their own life. There are lies that have destroyed marriages, destroyed opportunities. There are lies that have stolen the financial stability of families. Lies on a government side, lies on a family side, lies on a company side, on a friend side, on a personal side. It doesn't really matter. Lies can do major damage to lives. So let's throw that in there. We could go on and on and on all night. We could talk about all the things that happen in the world, all the chaos. We're not, we haven't even mentioned just cancer, illness in general, old age. I mean, why stop at uh, the choices people make? Why don't we go into weather, hurricanes, earthquakes? How many people died recently from the last earthquake that was mentioned? Uh, it was ridiculous. It was, I think it was over 10,000 plus people. I forget the numbers. An amazing amount of people that died from an earthquake just in the last couple of weeks. So why stop at choices people make? Why don't we talk about the fact that if God can stop earthquakes, why doesn't he stop earthquakes? If God can stop hurricanes, why doesn't he stop hurricanes, right? So let's go into that. All right. Now, once you've broadened the context, and now you recognize that abuse of children is not the only major issue, there are plenty of major issues wrong with the world, now let's answer the question, why doesn't God stop it? There is an answer. If God was going to stop people from sinning, then what would he have to do? He's only left with a few choices. Choice number one, kill them. Kill them. By the way, kill them before they sin, not after, because he doesn't stop the sin. If they sin, then he kills them. Right? So would this person that's questioning the God we serve does he want the God we serve to kill people before they even make the, the choice? Look, there's movies made about that kind of stuff, right? Uh, Minority Report is a famous movie about arresting people and putting them and imprisoning them before they've made the decision. Is that the God you want to serve? A God who judges people of a choice they haven't even made yet. I don't think many people want that kind of God. All right, so what's, what is God left with? If not to kill people uh, before they make choices to stop the sin, then he's left with 
keeping them from making the bad choice. Now, how does, how does God keep someone from making a bad choice? Well, he could turn them into robots, take away their free will. And so at that point, they don't get to choose. They are programmed to do what God wants. He takes away their free will, and now humanity only does what God approves of. Is that the God you want to serve? The first God we want to serve is, first option, is a God who kills people before they sin so that sin doesn't hurt people. The second option is a God who takes the free will of man. They all become robots so they can't hurt people. Well, there are other options. What's the other option? The other option is to start all over. God cannot take the sin out of man. God will not take the sin out of man against their choice. God allows man to have free will. He's not going to create robots. Therefore, man has the option to choose sin. If God takes away that option, he's creating robots. So, if God's not going to kill everyone before they sin, if God's not going to create robots, then all that's left is that God start all over. Create a new heaven, new earth, new everything. Start over, start fresh. What happens to everyone now if he starts over? They're dead. Those who have not chosen Christ, those who have not accepted Christ as their Savior, if he starts over and wants to create everything perfect, then those who have rejected him don't get to enter that perfection. They don't get to enter paradise. They don't get to enter this new heaven and this new earth, which means they only go the one direction that's left for them, hell. Now, I want to say this on a side note because a whole other issue is I don't want to serve a God who sends people to hell. Listen, God didn't create hell for the human. God created hell for Satan and his angels. That was their judgment for the choices they made. And let me tell you, it's deserving. It is just for Satan and his demons to go to hell for eternity with what they have done so far, and they're not even done yet. Unfortunately for humanity, like Satan saw Christ and rejected him, and a third of the angels exited heaven in rejection of Christ. Like that, unfortunately, a lot of humanity is doing the same, rejecting Christ. And unfortunately, has chosen to join Satan and his demons in the direction they're going, hell. You could say, well, the world doesn't know. If the world knew, they would accept Christ and go to heaven. Oh, there's plenty of people who know there's a God. Plenty of people who know about the Bible and still choose to reject God and the Bible. They are left, therefore, with only one direction, hell. Was not intended for them, but that is where they will end up if they reject Christ. So, if God was to start over and create a new heaven and a new earth, those who rejected Christ have only one direction, and that is hell. It is ironic that the very ones who say, there's no way I would serve a God who allows abuse and pain and death and cancer and, and chaos in the world, who can stop it but allows it. There's no way I would serve that God. Isn't it ironic that God says, I'm allowing it for you? For you. And they would say, there's no, there's no way that's true. I don't want it. No, God says, you don't understand. For me to stop it is for you to go to hell. 
if I was to return right now and start over right now, you wouldn't enter in to the start over. You'd be going to hell. And so I will allow the abuse of children, the chaos and the sin and the pain and the death, I will allow it to give you a chance to join the right side, to get saved. But I also tell you this, that's not an indefinite promise. God is going to start over. He is. The Bible tells us. Book of Revelation. There is a do-over. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And those who rejected Christ at that point will go to hell. God is not going to forever allow the abuse of children. God is not going to forever allow sin and death and pain. But he is for a time to give the world a chance to choose salvation. Because he's not going to force them to be saved. That would be creating robots. He's not going to kill them before they sin because they'd be going to hell anyways. So he's going to allow the world to live in chaos, to embrace chaos, to suffer chaos temporarily on this earth for the chance at an eternal paradise with him. That may seem like a heavy price to pay, children being abused so that the world has a chance to be saved. It may seem like a heavy price, and I'm not denying that it's not, but I'll tell you this. Eternity is what really matters. Our life in this earth is but a short time. If we're lucky, 80, 90, 100 years, those are the fortunate ones. I believe the average uh, life expectancy of a, of, a, of a female is in somewhere in the 80s, I think, and a uh, man is some years shorter than that. That's the average. Obviously, some will make it longer and do well, but the average is not that high. And so what's 80 years of, let's just say, suffering compared to eternity? And that's the real point. God views everything through the lens of eternity. Where we go when we die, what happens to our soul when we die, not just what happens to our body here. Whereas the world can't get past that. All they can see is what happens to our body here. And they say, you serve a horrible God because my body is suffering here. And God says, look past your body and recognize you are more than your body and your soul has eternal destination attached to it, heaven or hell. And I'm allowing the sin and the chaos and the abuse so your soul has more opportunity to accept me and be saved. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us in First Peter. It's not God's will that any should suffer, but that all should come to repentance. Not willing that any, that any, God is not willing that any should suffer. When we're talking about eternal hell, that any should go to hell. God doesn't want any to die and go to hell. But he is willing to hold off a little longer with his promise of return and judgment. He's willing to hold off and allow the suffering to negate the eternal suffering, which is the biggest deal. Having said that, that's the answer, by the way. Much longer maybe than you're expecting. You don't need to give it that long, but you now have the information you need to answer what is one of the most common questions or statements or attacks in a variety of ways. That's basically what it comes down to. I wouldn't serve a God that allows sin. I wouldn't serve a God that allows pain. I wouldn't serve a God that allows abuse or death or cancer or whatever. They say it different ways, but it's saying the same thing. That is the answer. 
for God to stop it, you go to, people go to hell. For eternity, they go to hell. But he does say here, his heart is, if you abuse children, you are better off jumping in an ocean with a boulder, with a millstone, a stone tied to your neck and just killing yourself now. Because what I have in store for you isn't pretty. So what is God saying? I will judge the abuser. They're not going to get away with it. Now, you may say, well, I see them getting away with it. They're, I see people abusing children. They seem to be getting away with it. Look, uh, God's judgment is not required to be done in your presence. You don't have to see it for it to, to know that it's happening. And God's judgment doesn't have to be now. It could be later. Even eternal judgment. God will deal with it. He says in verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt, you must forgive him. I love how these two verses are in the same passage because when they're separated, as sometimes they are, it's hard to put them together. Here's the two statements I want you to understand. Rebuking someone is confrontation. You confront them on their offense, confront them on their abuse, confront them on the hurt they caused you. God says, and he actually uses the word rebuke. So it's not like a kind of confront like, hey, just want to let you know what you said kind of bothered me in a text. Hey, I'm still your friend, but I was hurt by what you said. No, though, that's not a rebuke. A rebuke is a word that is a lot stronger than you kind of hurt my feelings yesterday when you said. A rebuke is, hey, you messed up big time. I, you have, I have lost trust in you. I don't know that I can trust you going forward. You, you, have, you seem to be a different person than who I thought you were. A rebuke is a strong confrontation that addresses in an open manner the wrong of the other. Not a half-hearted, slightly stated, kind of, sort of, not a big deal. No, it's a big deal. You messed up. And then the person has a choice. Continue in their sin or repent. Now, if they repent, Christ says you now have an obligation to forgive. If they sin again, rebuke them again. If they repent again, forgive them again and repeat the cycle all your days. <laughs> And that is not just in marriage, that is not just with families, that is not just in church, that is all people at all time. Which means you are not required to trust people when you forgive them. Rebuking someone is an obvious recognition that they did wrong and is going to affect your trust. It is okay to not trust someone and still forgive someone. Forgiveness does not require you to like them. Forgiveness does not require you to enable them, to befriend them, to embrace them. Forgiveness does not require you to place yourself in a position where they can are, and are allowed to keep hurting you. In fact, I would strongly suggest that if someone cannot be trusted and they keep hurting you, you should take yourself out of their life. Now, if they chase you down and hurt you, well, then you've got to forgive them again if they repent. But you should put up protection around yourself from those who want to hurt you. But when you are hurt, forgiveness is a requirement for the Christian. This particular passage does not mention 
why it's a, a requirement or, or in what way it can be done, but other passages do. There's a parable given where Christ states that uh, two men owed much to a king and uh, that uh, one owed a lot more than the other. And when the king forgave both, which one is more likely to, to love the king more? Well, the Pharisee says, well, it's going to be the one who owed more. And Christ said, exactly. The one who owed more is going to love more, love me more, and recognize just how gracious I was. In another parable, he says there was a king who had a servant who owed him a lot. He forgave him at all. And then that servant went to a lower servant who owed just a little. And that first servant attacked him and threw him in prison for just the little that he owed. When he should have forgiven, after he was forgiven much, he should have been willing to forgive anything, especially little. And you say, well, Pastor Russ, that doesn't involve me. Uh, the harm and hurt that people have done me is not a little. It's a lot. Oh, only in your own head. Because when you take the pain that has been towards you and compare it to the pain you've tossed Christ's way, it's nothing. When you compare the offenses that have been done to you to the offenses you've done to Christ, it's nothing. You see, you're comparing it to the wrong thing. Stop comparing the hurt others have directed towards you to other people. And start comparing it to what you've done to God in your entire life. And you will recognize the amount of forgiveness you receive from God is significantly more than any amount of forgiveness you've got to pass towards others. So, forgive. By the way, forgiveness isn't so much for the sake of the one you are forgiving. It is for your sake. You cannot Live the victorious, healthy Christian life in bitterness. You can't do it. If you want true victory in your life, forgiveness needs to be your middle name because people will hurt you. Verse 5, the apostles said unto him, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Now, isn't that interesting? Basically, they say, we want to sit back and we just want you to infuse faith into our life. We don't want to work at it. We want it to be given to us. You say, well, that's kind of funny. That's not how it works. Yeah, you know, that's not how it works. But don't we pray the same thing? Lord, in increase my uh, patience. What, you think God's just going to infuse patience into your life? No, what he will do is put situations in your life that require you to be patient so you can learn it. <laughs> Lord, increase my faith. Watch out what you're praying for. God might put situations in your life that require faith so you can learn it more. God is not going to hand you faith. Faith is trust. And trust is something you must give to someone who's earned it. And what I can tell you is this. We're going to read what Christ's response is. But in a practical way, if you want to trust God more, I'm going to give you a practical way to make that happen. Know God deeper. If you want to trust God more, know him deeper. I will tell you why. It is the human condition to give more trust to those who have proven that they deserve it. Now, here's the truth. I have gone through great lengths to gain the trust of the people here at Meriden Hills and at our school, Mid-State Christian Academy. Great lengths. For some of you... There's a, there's a few of you in this room that have been here almost as long as I've been here. And you've seen some of the things I've done. 
and some of the things I haven't done to gain and to keep the trust of the people here in both ministries. And you've given me your trust because of the choices I've made. But I could go out in the community and meet someone for the first time, and they wouldn't trust me as far as they could throw me. I'm the same guy. You say, well, Russ can be trusted. They don't know that. So for them to trust me, it's not enough for you to tell someone to trust me. The smart person in a community would say, all right, I'll give you a chance. I'll give you the opportunity to earn my trust. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be people out there that would trust me because they don't know any better. They're naive because only naive people trust strangers. But the smart one would say, okay, you seem to have a good resume. There's a lot of people that say they trust you. So I will give you a chance to earn my trust. And then I would hope that as they got to know me, I would earn their trust as well. How much more with God? How much more with his flawless resume? (laughs) What has God ever done, even one time, that would break your trust? When has God ever messed up, made a mistake, apologized, came back and repented to you for how he hurts you? When has God ever done something to derail you from true success, not your definition of success, not your version of success, true success. When has God ever taken you and thrown you off the path? Not once. And so if you want to increase your faith in God, you got to know God deeper. Because when you do, it is the human condition. You will naturally trust him more. It will happen. So if you lack faith, I'll tell you what you actually lack. You lack an understanding of the God you claim to love. Because to know God is to love God. And to love God is to trust God. But Christ chose to go a different route. Here's what he says in verse 6. If ye had the faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamore tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, And be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup, gird thyself, serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not, or I think not. So likewise ye. When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. What is Christ doing? Christ is saying, all right, let me give you two answers. The first answer is this. Christ didn't choose to go down the route, at least in this case, that I gave, which was, look, you you know me better, and you're going to trust me more, okay? That's going to happen. By the way, he gives that opportunity to them, Peter walking on the water, showing Peter, hey, you know me. I can walk on the water. See what you can do? You can walk on the water. He gives them opportunity after opportunity to know him so they will trust him. But in this case, Christ is stating, you know what? You think you're not successful because you lack a stronger faith. And he's saying, actually, Your success isn't as dependent on your deep faith as you think it is. Now, that seems like a shocking response. Wouldn't you assume that a Christian who has deeper faith is going to be more successful? 
than a Christian who does not. I mean, wouldn't that be a common assumption? I think that I think most of us would just, if I was to give you a quiz and say, all right, uh, letter A, a Christian with more faith is more successful. Letter B, a Christian with less faith is less successful. Letter C, uh, spiritual success is not overly dependent on the depth of a Christian's faith. I don't think many would choose letter C. And basically, that's what Christ is saying. He's saying, your success isn't dependent on your deep, deep faith. Now, why would that be? That seems very odd, even for me to say it. But let me give you an illustration. And I think your eyes will be open to the truth. Children. Five, six, 14, 15. Is their success in the family at least by the choices the parent can make for the child. I'm not talking about the child's rebellion or just stupid choices all around. I'm just talking about the choices that a child can make, I get, affect their life. But how about the choices parents make for the children that bring that child to success? Are those affected on a deep level by the trust a child has in their parent? Think about it. I've known families where the children aren't just struggling with rebellion. Like, they just don't really like their parents. They, they're not overly respectful, kind. Uh, it seems that there's a broken trust there. And those parents will bend over backwards to help their children. They would move heaven and earth to bring success to their children if they could. They would do that. Now, obviously, parents are only allowed to do so much. They're not God. But the point is, if a human parent would say, I don't care if my child trusts me or not. I'm fighting for their success. I don't care if my child really sees me for who I am. I would die for my child. And that's a human parent. God says, I'm your father. Your faith in me obviously will affect you emotionally. Uh, our faith in God will obviously affect us spiritually in the sense of our connection with God. But as far as our success in this life isn't due to our faith in God as much as you think. It's due to God's grace in us. God's grace on us. That's where our real success comes from. Otherwise, you have to make the statement, no, I'm successful because I got myself here. I'm successful because of the choices I made. I've pulled myself up spiritually, you might say. Look, I'm not denying that there are successful choices and there are destructive choices. I understand that. I'm not denying that there are uh, healthy paths and unhealthy paths. I get that. The apostles here, though, are saying, you know, we understand that, uh, you know, we, we are living a good life and we're with you. We just want to have better faith so we can do better things. And Christ is saying, you know what? I'll give you the power to do better things, even with a little faith, if you just allow me. And see, that's where a lot of Christians, I think, struggle. They want more faith because I think they assume if they have more faith, they're more powerful. I want to be a more powerful Christian. I want to be a superhero Christian. And my superpower is my faith. And the more faith I have, the more I can lift and the faster I can run and the further I can throw, right? All these amazing superpowers, spiritual superpowers, and my, my spiritual superpower serum is faith. More of it means more of everything else. And God is basically saying, no, what you need is more of my grace. Just let me 
do more through you. And you'll see amazing things happen. So what is it someone actually needs more of? Okay, obviously I agree, God. But here's the thing. God, God is offering as much of himself to you as he is going to, I think, any day. It's not that God offers more or less of himself to you day to day. So what is keeping us from allowing more of God to work through us? It's not, yes, that's what it is. It's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of humility. In our pride, we say, I don't need God. In our pride, we say, I can do this on my own. Give me more faith, God, and watch me do it on my own. And God's like, you don't need more faith. You just need more of me. <laughs> Get your pride out of the way, and I'll show you how it's done. I'll do it for you and through you. They're praying for the wrong thing, and that's basically what Christ is addressing here. Did you pay attention? He says, you want more faith. You really don't need a lot more faith. But now let me tell you about the servant who thinks they're a great servant when all they do is what's expected. They're not that great of a servant. So what is he dealing now with? Their pride. He's knocking them down a notch or two, saying, don't call yourself an amazing servant when all you do is the bare minimum. What's the bare minimum? The bare minimum is the job description. <laughs> if you have ever had the pleasure of overseeing human beings in the workforce, then you have discovered the human condition. And here is here's the human condition when it comes to the workplace and money. I did my job description. I want a raise. Oh, you don't understand. The amount we agreed upon was dependent on you doing your job description. If you didn't do your job description, you wouldn't be here at all. You'd be fired. You don't get a raise for doing what I hired you to do and the pay we agreed on originally. Raises come when you do more than the job description. Above and beyond what I asked of you. More than others. That's where the raise happens. And yet, how many in this room have had the pleasure of working with people who think because they accomplished their job description for one month? I don't know where their source of wisdom is coming from, to come into the office after one month and say, when's my raise? For what? I've been coming into work every day on time. I stayed till the bell, and I did my job. Well done. That's why we're paying you. What do you think we're paying you for? Christ is saying, your pride thinks you're worth more than you are. Your pride thinks you're better than you are. Don't you love how Christ is a lot more subtle here, though, than I am? I'm just saying it like it is. Christ, Christ is being a lot uh, kinder in the way that he deals with this. He's saying, you want more faith? All right, let me just tell you this. Powerful things can happen, even with little faith, because you're not the one doing the powerful things. I'm the one doing powerful things. And that sycamore tree being moved from one location to another isn't you. It would be me. If it's going to be moving, I'm the one moving it. And that mountain that's crumbled won't be you doing the crumbling. It'll be me doing the crumbling. That's why it's called faith. 
faith in the one who's going to do the work, God. You need more humility to let me do more with you and through you. We don't know or hear the response of the apostles. I would imagine if there's any wisdom at all, they would quietly consider (laughs) what was just said. But let's go now to verse 11. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now, I've told you before, Samaria is a region. There is, of course, the city of Samaria within the region of Samaria. So Jews had to pass through the region of Samaria to get to Galilee. So you had Galilee at the top, you had Samaria in the middle, and you had Judah at the bottom of what was Israel. So to get from Judah to Galilee, you pass through Samaria. The city of Samaria was on the main road. But a lot of Jews didn't like passing through the city of Samaria. It was bad enough to pass through the region of Samaria. They didn't like Samaria. There was racism going on, heavy racism for the Jews and Samaritans alike. Neither of them liked each other. But Christ did not avoid Samaria. Christ did not let the racism of his day affect his love for the human soul. We unfortunately do not see that love and care for the human soul rubbed off on the apostles as fast as we would like. It seems that as Christ is still alive, the apostles still harbor some racism in their hearts and minds. It even seems in the early church there is a form of racism in the apostles and others to a degree. By the end of the New Testament, by the end of the epistles, the letters that we see the apostles writing at the end of their life, it seems by then that racism has been torn out from them. They have been humbled on, on more than one occasion. And God has, I'm not going to say completely purified his church of racism. I don't know if that that's ever happened. But we do see an early church a lot closer to the heart of Christ, which is it's not about the ethnic background. It's not about the skin color. It's about the human soul. It always is for God. He actually says in his word, through one of the penmen, neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, man or woman. He says, none of these things matter to me. When I see people, I see the human soul. That's God's. All right. He's passing through Samaria, Galilee. Verse 12, as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. Fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the, are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. You've heard this story since you were a young child in Sunday school. You know the theme, thankfulness, graciousness. And don't just feel it, show it. Great truths for children and adults alike. But I'm going to look at the opposite side of this. What happened to the nine ungrateful? The nine unthankful, what was the end of their story? They were still healed, and they still went home to their families. What's the point 
Grace isn't earned. The ungrateful can still benefit from the grace of God, which just makes God's grace even more profound. We, in our human soul, would think only those who are grateful should receive grace. I am so glad God doesn't agree. Even the ungrateful can benefit from God's grace. What's the, what's the takeaway for you? I imagine everyone in this room has family and friends who are ungrateful towards God, towards you. You can know this. God still wants to be gracious to them. And maybe you'd be wise to reflect God's grace to them. If God, who knows them better than you, who has the power and authority to do something about their ungratefulness, chooses to still be gracious, how much more should we? God loves the ungrateful. God loves the world. God died for the ungrateful. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. While we still hated him ungratefully, he graciously died. Show a little more grace, guys. And do not think people need to earn your grace. If they do, it's not grace. You want to reflect God truly? Then show grace to everyone, especially those who didn't earn it. I love the one. I love the, the heart of the one. Christ commends the one. Let's not belittle or demean the one. Gratefully returning, worshiping. Christ says, well done. <laughs> Here you are when the other nine were not. Encourages them. Continue on as you have. But he didn't replant leprosy back in the un ungrateful nine. They too enjoyed a healthy future. We can't always know the impact of grace. We don't know the impact that grace had on these nine. The Bible chooses to not give us their story. Is it possible that in time, these nine would reflect on the grace shown to them and will get saved? I think very possible. We'll only know when we die and go to heaven. But I can tell you this. Grace, when God gives it, is never given without some effect. Doesn't mean they'll turn to God. Doesn't mean they'll repent. But God has a purpose for giving grace. And we may not see immediately that played out. We got to trust that God has a bigger plan and knows the future. And can you be part of that plan? Yes, you can. So the final question for tonight is this. Do you want to be part of that plan? Do you want to be part of God's plan of grace, showing graciousness to others? Or do you want to be part of the world's plan of pain and hurt and offense? I'd rather be on God's side. Showing grace, living grace. That does not mean you embrace or enable a life of sin. 
It means you are gracious even to the ungrateful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for tonight, for those listening online, those listening here in the sanctuary, and the opportunity we've had to be challenged with some truths. I pray that these truths would not just be embedded in our minds, but embraced by our hearts, that we would apply what has been heard tonight and consider what choices we can make that would lead us closer to you and closer to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.